Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. everyone, welcome back to Talking Tudors, episode 138. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger, and I'm so glad that you could join me. As always, I'd like to start by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support this podcast via Podbean Patron, and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. If you love the podcast and tune into every episode, perhaps you'd consider becoming a Talking Tudors patron. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, or click on the Be a Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family, and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. December's prize is a Tudor Rose Collection Candle Package, sponsored by Clio Global. Clio's Tudor Rose Candle recreates the aromas of the Tudor court. This month's Talking Tudors patron prize will feature a Tudor Rose Candle, along with art prints of Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn, created by Cleo partner Royalty Now. All patrons are also eligible to attend monthly Talking Tudors live talks, which take place on Zoom. These events are exclusive to patrons. At the end of December, I'll be chatting to Tracy Borman about her new book, Crown and Scepter, and much more. Please get in touch with me if you'd like to register for the event. You can also support the podcast and share your love of Tudor history with the world by buying Talking Tudors merchandise. There are a number of designs and products available, including phone cases, mugs, notebooks, and apparel. Check out all the products at talkingtudors.threadless.com. I would love to see pics of you wearing or using your Talking Tudors merch, so please do tag me on social media and use the hashtag #ILoveTalkingTudors. Now, on to today's episode. I'm thrilled that joining me on the show to talk about the Reformation is Michelle peterson Clark. Michelle has loved history since she was 10 years old, when her parents took her to London for the first time. At the age of 50, she realised her lifelong dream of studying history at the University of Oxford, undertaking a British and European studies course first, which saw her the following year being accepted in a Master's in Early Modern History with Oriel College, Oxford. She graduated in July 2019. Her dissertation was on the continental context of the printing of the early English Bible, 1525 to 1540, which focused on the revolution in printing that was birthed from the Reformation sweeping Europe and England during Henry VIII's reign. 
Michelle is in the process of setting up her blog that will focus on history and travel. Her two great loves, savvy travel historian, won't just post travel photos of historical places, but will also tell people about the history of the places she visits. Despite being delayed by 18 months because of COVID, Michelle and her family have returned to the UK and are now living in the village of Wallingford in South Oxfordshire and setting off on their next lot of adventures to travel and discover even more places than they did the last time they lived in the UK. Our conversation's coming straight up after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sales. Welcome to Talking Tudors, Michelle. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's lovely to have you on the show. So let's just start by you introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about your background. I've had a few career lives. i um, worked for um, the state government and um, local government in South Australia for a number of years and did some consulting work. I'm a social planner by profession. So that's an urban planner, but someone that looks after people. So schools and, um, you know, community services and public housing and stuff like that. And then um, we moved from Adelaide to Melbourne for my husband's business and he runs an engineering business. And so I kind of did staffing and human resources and all of that for quite some time. In between raising three children, I've got three boys and two stepchildren and then I got into I mean I've kind of always written things because I've got a few university degrees under my belt and so I I started doing marketing writing blogs and um, you know that sort of thing for for business people that we knew and all that sort of time I've, I've been since I was about 10 years old my parents took me to London and so I've, I've loved English history since then and, and I've always in the back of my mind had this thing I'd really love to go and study at Oxford but you know I thought I'd miss the boat with that because I was a geographer I wasn't a historian and so um, we set a plan in um, 2010 and decided that we'd come and live in England for six months in 2017 and that turned into 12 months because I found a course that I could do at Oxford applied and and got into it and at 50 I turned 50 that year so in 2017 so we packed eight suitcases our nine-year-old and headed off to England for a year that turned into two because I um, subsequently got accepted into a master's in early modern history and then I I did my master's on the the continental context of the printing of the um, early English bible 1520 to 1547 so during Henry's reign and so that's how I reinvented myself I guess as a historian although I do still do marketing stuff because when you're a writer you write no matter what so I'm sort of combining both and and setting up a a love of a love of history and travel sort of combining it into savvy travel historian which is where I'm sort of at now. 
Fantastic. What a varied and, and wonderful career. That's that's really great. Now, we are going to be talking a little bit about the Reformation. I actually think this is possibly the first episode I've done on it in, in many episodes. So I'm excited about this. So perhaps when people... Which is hear, really scary because you've had some really good people on who know a lot about the Reformation. <laughs> well, there's so much to talk about, isn't there, that, you know, you find that these things happen. But so when people hear about or hear the word reformation, perhaps they think a little bit about Martin Luther and the nailing of his 95 thesis to the door at the church in Wittenberg. But is this really the case? Well, it's certainly true that, you know, it was this event that kicked off the vigorous debate and discussion around practices of the Catholic Church at the time. You know, there's a there's a debate about how much development of his ideas Luther did actually before that fateful day um, in October 1517. I mean, certainly at the time, he did not think that his ideas were going to result in breaking away from the Catholic Church at all. Like his 95 theses were really more of a discussion, sort of a starting point. And, and all the pictures you see of Luther have him nailing it to the door when in actual fact it was likely to be pasted because nails weren't invented then. So, <laughs> so that's actually just a bit of a meme thing I think that we've come to know but you know he's he's he was seeking reform within the church and the current structure that it had and and, and he really didn't think it would be a new doctrine as, as to how it developed you know there were rumblings in the catholic church at the time around the practices that they were undertaking particularly with indulgences and you know for centuries confessing of your sins and and taking some form of payment for that was the way of life for the catholics you know things like if you did good works or if you went on pilgrimage or um you know if you did charitable works you know like or, or if you didn't do good things then you'd suffer in purgatory and so at the time there was a notion that if you died your soul sat in purgatory until you had paid for all the sins that you've done and I guess rich people started to think well they didn't like that idea because you know how long were they going to sit there for what about if I could pay someone to either go on pilgrimage for me or say prayers for me after I've dead to speed up my journey into heaven so I could move out of purgatory and certainly as as early as the 11th century, people started sort of talking about that. And, and so the, the Catholic Church started to, to bring in this system where you could remit your sins. And it turned into, obviously, as we know, a big money spinner for them. And certainly in the 16th century, the payment of, of indulgences helped build St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome. So, you know, that gives you a bit of an idea and lists as an idea about how much money was raised. But Luther was really uncomfortable with the idea that you had to pay for salvation in this way. And so initially, I think he just wanted, you know, those questions um, and ideas to be discussion points. But we end up with the 16th century equivalent of all hell breaking loose, I guess you could say. <laughs> You know, but at the time, and certainly this was some of the things that I investigated in my master's thesis, was that, you know, printing of pamphlets was, was starting to emerge in Europe. And Luther was an excellent marketer in this regard. He used this medium really effectively to distribute his theses. And, you know, this meant that there were people far and wide could actually read what he was talking about. They didn't have to be in front of the church door at Wittenberg to know um, what was going on. And then it, then it kind of ascended into the printing press being used by both sides during this time. You know, arguments for and against the ideas that formed the Reformation and the, the different smaller Reformations that developed and went on. But certainly throughout the early stages of the English Reformation, Henry and, and most of the population were and remained quite conservative and committed to the traditional faith. But as 
Luther's works began to start to arrive in the 1520s. You know, Henry was really quite against him and, and initiated a campaign using print largely from, um, and obviously from continental printers, we'll talk a little bit later about English printing presses were really quite backward, would be a good word, I think, to say at that, at, you know, at that stage. But but there was a lot of conservative Catholics who, you know, extended patronage and things like that. You know, the nobility sort of set up people to have arguments for and against what the ideas of Luther were. And, and Henry, in fact, we know in 1521 was, you know, Pope Leo X gave him a, the defender of the faith title because of of his book that he wrote against Luther's heresies. I think that by the summer of, of 1518, other ideas were starting to sort of come out. We have Erasmus um, and, you know, his humanist ideals were being developed at universities all over Europe. But it was a fertile ground for young men to question what was happening around them and print facilitated that. So many of the early reformers, they studied at Oxford and Cambridge and they were exposed to humanist ideas and classical texts. And it was in this environment that they discussed Luther's ideas. And then certainly students at, at Cambridge, you know, they, they had a very good um, group of people that had lots of discussions and it was really a groundswell for reformists, you know, by the mid sort of 1520s. But, you know, obviously people were interested in the Bible long before Luther's ideas were published and, and there were other people as well. You know, there, in England there were men such as William Tyndale and, and John Frith, Miles Coverdale in the early, you know, 1520s. You know, Luther was just one source of ideas that they were looking at at the time. They were kind of looking at all sorts of different things. There's a, a gentleman called John Barnes, and he was probably the only one among Cambridge group that stayed closest to Luther's ideas. The others kind of all drifted off and moved into to different parts. But that Cambridge group were really quite were quite instrumental in looking at and studying Erasmus and discussing their concerns about the, the ecclesiastical abuses within the church at the time. But there was no cohesive evidence that at these early stages anyone was deeply dissatisfied at all with Catholic doctrine. So there's lots of different ideas, there's lots of talking, there's lots of developing of, of things on a range of topics. And print enabled Luther to be able to spread these ideas a bit further and it kind of fueled what was to come. So there were, you know, there were many reformers and many others involved besides Luther, but obviously Luther's the famous one <laughs> out of them, the most famous. Yes, and we're going to talk a little bit more as well about that fluidity because I think that's quite interesting and the role that yeah. printing played in, in a little yes. bit. But I also wanted to ask you, so scholars such as Christopher Haig and George Bernard have written about the English or the King's Reformation, but is this idea changing now? Well, you know, the English Reformation is certainly often being told as a really Anglo-centric type story. You know, much of the historiography would have us believe that it was an act of state by Henry, um, you know, historians from in the 60s like Dickens and Parker certainly thought this but recent scholarship is has argued that the English Reformation was much more continental in, in nature um, than what originally was suggested so you've got Andrew Pedigree or Dermot McCulloch who are advocating and discussing that the rise of these reformist ideas was very much an international movement and, and England was just a small part of a much larger story that unfolded beyond the 16th century and events in England I think really really need to not be interpreted in isolation from 
her European neighbours because that just wasn't the case. You know, from the early 1520s, you've got a number of English scholars and clergy. They travelled abroad and, you know, came back to England back and forth quite often and they became radicalised by reformist ideas while they were doing that. As you said before, you know, movement was very fluid and enabled them to be exposed to different ideas and then they would write their thoughts and, you know, that would develop over time. So, you know, Tyndall, George Joy, William Royce, they were radicalised on the on the continent by doing by going back and forth and by their traveling and certainly you know someone um, like the Archbishop of Canterbury Thomas Cranmer he was influenced as well in the 1530s and that shaped things like you know the early development of Protestant ideas for the church and he then wrote the book of common prayer in 1549 so you know his ideas were also shaped in the same way as the years progressed, you know, more reformers joined Tyndall and Joy on the continent and the concentration in the low countries enabled the this spread of Protestant ideas and it was facilitated by the use of print, which was really quite active um, in Europe at the time. But it was a dangerous time for people and, you know, the, the Catholic authorities were wanting to stamp it out. You know, they didn't want the, the reform movement to progress. And But as the, the popularity in England increased demand for literature about it also increased and so that was like a bit of a like of a chicken and the egg kind of thing you know like the you know they didn't know very much and then they read something about them then they wanted to know more and so then more was printed about it so there you know there was a that sort of situation going on as well but you know certainly Barnes and Coverdale particularly traveled back and forth quite a bit but what they also did was they were intermediaries for for Henry's court and for relaying information about what was going on in continental activities and other courts back to the king and you know Henry certainly heard about more groundswell about Luther and those sorts of things because people went back and forth and, and gave information. Henry was certainly influenced by other rulers in, in Europe by having these men going back and forth. So let's talk a little bit more about the printing press because we've, you've mentioned printing a lot. So, so tell us a little bit more about the role it played in the success, I suppose, of the Reformation and how did the continent influence this as well? So in 1520, the print industry in, in England was in its really, really early stages infancy. Caxton was almost the sole printer um, and the methods used and the quality produced was just inferior, really inferior to that found on the continent. You know, for a long time, there were craftsmen to operate the machines and, and things in England all had to come from Europe. We didn't have anyone in England who was able to operate the presses and know about the printing process and those sorts of things. You know, England, the English industry was heavily reliant on the developments and, and the, the skill of the craftsmen from Europe. You know, th there was nothing here. The machines, the type, woodcuts you know the ornaments anyone involved in the industry and any tools used had to come from England England didn't even have its own source of paper at the time so there was a, a paper mill quite early on or towards the the end of the, the 15th century but I think it closed down and so they had to import all the paper so when they did that the authorities also knew how much paper was available so as things started to heat up in terms of printing presses and stuff like that if if more and more paper suddenly came in they knew that there was perhaps clandestine printing going on and those sorts of things if if, you know, printers were being hidden in backs of flower shops and things like that. But when it came to the first authorised copy of the, of the 
the Bible in English, the one that Cromwell asked Coverdale to do. He turned to French printers to do it because the quality of what they wanted was not good enough for the look and the feel, I guess. And in actual fact, the printers produced the first two copies of it on parchment paper. One was for Henry and one was for Cromwell and, and then the rest were on normal paper. But And then there's a whole story about how the French authorities, because they were quite Catholic, they had to stop printing them and they confiscated the presses and the pages and there was negotiation about getting it back and ultimately everything was moved to England and it was printed there but you know there was all that sort of stuff going on but the English authorities really waged war with the continental printers in those days and that started sort of with Wolsey as well they wanted to stop the importation of religious books in English Bibles and religious pamphlets you know many of them were Luther's works um, and some of the other reformers. In 1524, we've got Cuthbert's Tunstall, the Bishop of, of London, implementing a ban on printed books and booksellers. And you had to obtain, you know, ecclesiastical permission to print anything. Um, and for sort of for, for the next five years, there was this campaign against, um, you know, continental reformer books coming to England. And, and over the years from that sort of period and into, you know, right up to 1531, you, you've got lists. 30 different publications that are banned in England that are readily available in Europe and in the con on the continent that, that people in England, in theory, weren't allowed to read. So that's how we get, you know, books going from being large publications to little small pocket Bibles that can fit into, the, into a glove or a sleeve so that people can start to walk around with Bibles or literature that they are wanting to read, but they can be hidden as they're walking around. Um, you know, whereas like the Great Bible, for example, was this whopping great big thing that had to be put on a special pedestal and chained so that people didn't steal it because they were so expensive, but no one could carry that around. It was so heavy. So, so the printing of different versions of the Bible over this time they got to be quite small they got to be medium-sized you know like there was there was quite a range so that people could conceal them or have them proudly displayed when I was researching some of this, just as a as an aside, not directly related to this, but it was something very fantastic for me. I was researching the printing things and, and looked at the original papers in the British Library. And I was just turning the pages over. And then I turned over the next page and there was Anne Boleyn's signature on a letter that she had written in support of the French printers to Cromwell. And um, I just sat there and went, oh my goodness. So that was that was pretty exciting. That was one of the really exciting things during my my um, research for my dissertation that um, I discovered. So if anyone ever wants to get a, a membership to the British Library, which is free, by the way, um, and go in there and look for them, it's a fantastic thing. <laughs> How exciting. It's such a personal connection, isn't it? And you can make such an emotional connection, I think, with someone from so long ago. I know. it's It was incredible. It was sort of like I wasn't really expecting that. I was just sort of turning the pages, having a look, and then bang, I went, oh, my goodness. <laughs> Amazing. All right. So yeah. let's talk a little bit about William Tyndale. You mentioned him before. So there's probably another name that people have heard of a lot. So what was his role in the Reformation? So if you pick up a copy of the King James Bible today, about 80% of what you read was translated in the 16th century by Tyndale. You know, much has been written about the distribution of the vernacular English Bible in England um, during this period. But and, and most of that has centered on Tyndale's contribution because it was extensive 
extensive and, you know, rightly so. He was a master at his craft. You know, he was the first to translate the New Testament of the Bible from the original Greek um, and Hebrew into English. So he didn't look at the Latin versions. He actually went back to what we have as the original sources and translated for that. But I think one of the, the most fascinating things about him that I discovered during my research was just the things that we have in the words and the sayings we have in our everyday lives that he created during his translations that people would just not think of like words like Passover and congregation were created by him we've got everyday sayings that were invented by him you know things like see the writing on the wall cast the first stone salted the earth fight the good fight broken hearted the powers that be blind leading the blind you know I can go on and on but there's you know my brother's keeper let there be light the spirit is willing the flesh is weak sign of the times all of those things all of those sayings all of those words and the, the string of those words were written by Tyndall and like Luther when they did their translations, they wanted it to sound good when it was read aloud. And, you know, at several points in history, he was, you know, one of the most hated men in England. Um, and he was pursued and hunted down. And because they, they really, at that time, they really didn't want a full translation of the Bible in English. You know, in the prologue to his 1525 translation, he wrote that he never in wanted to intentionally alter or misrepresent the Bible in any way. Um, he just wanted it to interpret the sense of the spirit of the scripture and the meaning of the spirit. And that was, you know, one of the quotes he put in there. But eventually he was tricked by an Englishman and Henry Phillips and he was given up to authorities. And ultimately he was strangled and burned in the autumn of 1536, which was, you know, after being in prison, which was really quite sad I mean fortunately he'd managed by that time to completely revise his New Testament and that's what we see extensively in the King James Version today and he also did the first five books of the Old Testament so the, the Pentateuch you know I think we could do a whole podcast on Tyndall and his role in that but you know like it was uh, we'll talk in a minute about you know some of the dangers that they faced you certainly had to be committed um, to the cause so to speak um, of what you wanted to do and he was certainly hell-bent on translating the Bible because he wanted um, the everyday English person to read it. Yeah, and that is a, a tragic end. And I think if anyone kind of has a look through the state papers of 1535 and early 1536, there are a lot of letters back and forth to England, to Cromwell, especially kind of in his, I'm pretty sure in one of his remembrances, he's like, what are we going to do about this guy, basically? As you mentioned, of course, Anne Boleyn, she thought there should be a, a Bible in the vernacular. So yes. it was a very tricky line to walk with Henry that no one ever knew exactly what he was thinking or what he wanted. So yeah, really dangerous. But we are going to talk about that in a moment. I wanted to read you, Michelle, a passage, an extract from a paper that Professor Eric Ives wrote, if you don't mind, and then I just want mm -hmm. you to comment on it. So he said that reform was a posture rather than a position. And we are moreover dealing very largely with the commitment, belief and understanding of specific individuals, not with abstract or collective propositions at this time. So the term reform can only indicate a taxonomy of issues and positions on which individuals took or did not take individual stands. So stands which shifted from time to time, one way and the other, one has only to look at Thomas Cranmer to be aware of that. So this fluidity was still further accentuated because the thinking of the continental reformers was itself continuing to evolve. Thus, it is wholly premature, according to Ives, 
to attempt to describe early reform in England in terms of coherent creedal positions. The reformers themselves would have been hard put to agree on any comprehensive confession of faith. I found this particular passage really interesting. Do you agree with his comments? And can you tell us a little bit about some of those individual beliefs that fueled and encouraged the early reformers in England? Yeah, I I think that that's certainly true. As we I sort of talked about earlier, the people were developing their ideas, some quicker than others. But you know, it was certainly a dangerous time as well to have these ideas. The prevailing wisdom at the time often changed. You know, like one day you could be having a discussion with someone about Luther or whatever, and which was okay. You thought it was a pretty good and, you know, an, an active discussion. The next day someone knocks on your door and you get arrested because that person's reported you to the authorities or whatever. So, you know, there's many instances during that time of particularly on the continent, reformers grabbing the print run of their pamphlets or in Tyndall's case, you know, the first pages of the Bible off of the press in, the printing press in Cologne. He runs out the back door, grabs a boat to Worms and, you know, and he has to hide until it's time to, he has to lie, lay low for a while. And, and then when the authorities have stopped looking for him or have given up, he sort of then started again with a with a new printer and the whole process has sort of started over again. You know, that in the environment like that, people were changing their ideas all of the time. As an aside, those pages that, that Tyndall did grab off that Cologne press are now known as the Cologne Fragments and they're in the British Library. If people go in, you can actually have a look at those. So when you're visiting, it's a, it's a good thing to have a look at. But, you know, initially Luther didn't get into that much trouble until after he was, he was um, asked to recant his ideas and he wouldn't. Like up until that point, it was sort of like, oh, come on, you know, like, yes, we know there's a few problems, but how about modifying your ways or whatever? And then after the the diet in worms, he he was said, well, you have, you know, he was told that he needed to recant and he said, well, I'm not going to do that. But, you know, during that period, changing your name or living in a new town under a different name was pretty common and, you know, clandestine meetings with supporters. And it was normal, I think, for them to to live in fear, in, in, a, in a state of fear somewhat some of the time if they were going to have the courage of their convictions for their beliefs. There were hotly debated topics and indulgences like as we talked about before were particularly, you know, one of them. The idea of having a vernacular Bible that lay people could read and discover the word of God for themselves was fundamental to the progress of the reforms. But also it was one of the things that the Catholic Church was and its supporters were most hotly against. I mean, until that time, the majority of Bibles were in Latin, although there were some, you know, German translations before Luther even, some vernacular ones, but but not in English. But only educated priests in those days could read Latin. Um, or educated people as well, but they didn't really have access to the Bible. It was really what the, the, you know, the doctrine of the Catholic Church was that the priest told you in his sermon what it was that you needed to think. Um, And that was really the only way you heard what God wanted you to know. But as people started having access to God's word directly, they realized that not everyone's interpretation of that word was the same. So by having a text in front of you, it allowed people to think for themselves, to see God's word for themselves and say, well, how does this apply to my life? And that was a really powerful thing. You know, like I think that things we can't imagine now, you know, and take for granted were were new experiences for them. You know, like a really interesting thing to come out of that at the time was that people wanted to learn to read. And so, you know, you've, you've got cases where there was a head of a household or, or a head of a, a village, usually male, 
he could either read or read a bit or decided to learn to read so that he could read the Bible to his family and to his neighbours. You see some woodcuts and images of, of people sitting around on the floor with someone on a chair holding a book, which was obviously the Bible, and reading it to people. And so at this time, we see literacy rates start to rise. And it was all because people wanted to be able to read the Bible themselves um, in English because they were printed thus um, rather than being in Latin. But, you know, as with most things, these sorts of things, there's there's a number of controversies that surrounded it at the time. You know, Tyndall and George Joy had a, a famous stouch carried out over in print um, over the translation of the word resurrection. Tyndall wanted the word from the, the Greek and the Hebrew as resurrection, whereas Joy was doing a revision of some of Tyndall's work and he wrote Life After This, Tyndall objected. So the two of them carried out this statue quite publicly in the, the prologues or epilogues of future editions of the translations over a period of a couple of years where they sort of said, well, he said this and, you know, he said that about me and whatever. And it was a, a certainly a very public splat and it was, it really got quite nasty, but ultimately Tyndall is the one that we know and remember, and he destroyed Joy's reputation for centuries because of it. But so that's how print was used as well in, in those types of things. What is clear from the exchange of those two is that exiled reformers didn't always agree with each other. Um, and, and that's what I was talking about. These were the people that were actually translating things and interpreting for the rest of us, but their, their messages and how they conveyed that to the reading public were, were certainly different. You know, we don't have time now to discuss the whole transubstantiation debate. Luther thought that, you know, that Christ was actually present in the Eucharist and, and there was a big, you know, there's a big hoo-ha, I suppose you could say, over that stuff. And even today, Catholics and Anglicans and and Lutherans think quite differently about it. I mean, what I think is important to remember too is that when there were disputes or when there were changing ideas at this time, these men turned to print to, to discuss that with people. The, the level of animosity and the bait the debate that was channeled through these works advocated the Protestant cause, assisted the Catholic cause as well. So both sides used it um, during this time. And I don't think that, and I'm not the only scholar, I don't think, but I don't think that without print at that time, the level and the speed at which that happened would have been able to to advance because it's so hard now because we can just go down the road and you know pick up a book or buy a newspaper or even you know read something on the internet so so we don't understand at the time that at that time someone printing something off of a press and and coming to a group and saying oh hey have a read of this was just an incredible thing because it was so new the exiled reformers the english exiled reformers on the continent had an avenue in which they could publish their work. So people at home heard about them. Um, and they were also then also able to challenge the things that in the early days, Henry's court and, and Henry himself, the polemic, you know, that they were spreading around, they could actually argue against that or debate that um, in, a, in a very public way. Yeah, I always feel so sorry for the everyday person, I think, at this point, because I, I, I just think it was just so confusing knowing what was right, what was permitted, what wasn't. I think at some point, I don't know if it was 1534 or 1535, Cranmer basically says, look, we're just not going to talk about these issues because they're too controversial. So you're not allowed, you know, including pilgrimages and, and worshipping saints and all that sort of thing. So I think he, he sort of said, 
no one's going to be preaching about them, but of course then everyone was still preaching about them, you know. <laughs> so it's like why it's hard to kind of get your head around what people are thinking at this time when you're trying to to understand what it is they they wanted because of these changes and how fluid it all was. Yes. Yeah, I mean, it, it, and it was it was a really you know we talked before it's a really dangerous time. You know, men such as Coverdale and you know, John Rogers, Robert Barnes, you know, Simon Fish, you know, they sought refuge um, abroad because they were forced to flee um, persecution. George Joy's beliefs, you know, caused him trouble with authorities in England, even as early as 1526. Uh, you know, his rooms were raided. Um, he was suspected of har- having heretical and prohibited literature. And even a year later, um, he had to appear before Wolsey because the Bishop of Lincoln said he, he held heretical and suspect opinions. Like, I mean, you couldn't even think aloud, I think, in those days. Um, you know, and, and it was really tricky, you know, you know by mid-1539, Henry you know he'd been wavering between the old faith and the new reformist ideas he changed his mind um and you know when the the act of the six articles were brought in Coverdale had to flee England and and go to the continent like he, he couldn't return and didn't return until um the reign of Edward the, the sixth so you know like it, it was really dangerous um and he was he was doing things that they wanted him to do on any particular given day and suddenly oh no that's not that's not today's thinking. Today's thinking is X and now you're in trouble. But the press was, the printing press was really used at this time in for the English doctrinal disputes, whereas in the continent, they may have, you know, got together and had discussions like the Diet of Worms, for example, where they could debate, okay, well, this person thinks this and I argue against this. And, and they sort of had a bit of a, more of a, an open exchange, even though ultimately, you know, the people who were on the wrong side of the, the debate um, ended up being in trouble and, and still you know were persecuted or had to flee or whatever but it but at least they had that but in England they didn't have that yeah, and then of course that meant it, it it went a lot longer as well because obviously yes. you've got to write your thing then you have to get it printed you know and then it's got to be distributed and then someone's got to go well hang on you know so it could be six months or a year between things you know certainly Thomas More and Tyndall had a very a very famous back and forth discussion about those things. Yeah I was going to say those um the, the arguments that people were having via print are always quite interesting and as you say the period in between to get everything written and all the rebuttals and and so it's it's yeah it's fascinating because now people would just jump on twitter wouldn't they and you'd be like (laughs) just tweet something about the other person Um, yeah so we're no keyboard warriors in those days the last question I want to ask you, Michelle, is in your research and during all the work that you've done, how could you summarise for us, as this is a tricky question I know, how could you summarise for us Henry's attitude to the Reformation? Well, his attitude certainly is an interesting one, isn't it? And he certainly changes, you know, appears to be going back and forth. And I think some of that is depending on who was sort of in favour at the time, who had the king's ear, so to speak, and, and also the the motives of what Henry wanted at any given moment. You know, historian George Bernard's book, The King's Reformation, which is a very thick, heavy doorstopper kind of book. Um, so obviously George thought that there was a lot, to, a lot to write about in terms of Henry's ideas on the subject. And he'd certainly have us believe that he played a major role in what occurred in England at the time. But but I don't think it's really as simple as that because it's, you know, the king wanted an heir and he was married to a woman for 20 years that hadn't given him one that lived longer than a few months. And, and the simpleness of people saying, oh, well, the treasury was empty. So the dissolution of the monasteries was, you know, something that 
that enabled the, the coffers to be full again and that's why you thought it was a good idea and you know like I think it's a really complex and it's a bit more of a mixture of that you know as I, as I said before travellers and you know scholars they went back and forth between the courts and, and in doing so they listened to the various different views and they brought them back and that all had an impact on Henry's court and you know there's quite a large amount of correspondence in the papers that show us these exchanges so despite the fact that England was separated physically from the continent, I think that the ideas and the discussions around all of this at the time certainly was quite influential on the people, on the king and the people around him. I mean, there's no doubt that Henry remained a practising Catholic right up until his death, you know, so even though his... Um, belief in purgatory was waning around sort of that 1538 period he still hedged his bets a bit you know like he refused to abolish um, clerical and uh, monastic celibacy um, and in his will at last will and testament he allocated money for injunctions to pray for his soul and for priests to give a sermon at um, St George's Windsor every Sunday on his behalf although he never did pilgrimage very much I think he went on one pilgrimage quite early Catherine was really the one that believed in the pilgrimages and compared to previous monarchs and I know there's books about this just this particular topic had been written but he he didn't do that um like his father and and some of the other monarchs before him i think that this is sort of drawn out a bit too from him being quite a humanist prince and um, erasmus's teachings and the exposure that he had to those sorts of things Certainly Henry was just, has been described by one historian as, uh, you know, Catholicism without the Pope. You know, he enjoyed not sending the money to Rome um, and having the riches in his own coffers. And by breaking away from the church, he was able to divorce Catherine and Marianne. And he was certainly more open to, I think, the reformist ideas during Anne's tenure with him. But I think deep down he always remained a large part Catholic. You know, perhaps if he had been granted the divorce from Catherine, things in England would be very different today. I don't think it's, it's, you know, it's not a 25 words or less answer. No, <laughs> no it's a <laughs> there very, are people very that, tricky question. <laughs> there, are, there are people that study their whole careers just on this one topic. So I, I'm not, I don't feel as if I'm eminently qualified to, <laughs> to have a definitive answer either way. <laughs> no, I think that was a really good response. And I think it's important to note, as you said, that he, he died a practicing Catholic. I think sometimes there's a little bit of confusion because of the, you know, the ideas that were around at the time, but no, he was quite conservative most of his life, I think. Thank you so much. Now at the end of our episodes, Michelle, we do a little game of 10 to go. So these are 10 questions just to get to know you a little bit better. So first okay. one, and I know you've recently moved, you've just moved, but what is something you love about where you're living now? Ah, so we live in a village now. Um, so I've moved from Australia, Melbourne, um, and we've moved back to the UK and we live in a village now called Wallingford. And so it's sort of halfway between Reading and Oxford. And and I walked into the village yesterday to go to the post office and I hadn't been before. It was a very big step, you know, going into the village <laughs> and going to the post office. And I just, there's a market square and it's quite pretty. Um, it's certainly not a, a Castle Coombe type village, but it's quite a pretty village. And I came out of the post office and looked down the high street towards the, the market square and just took this sort of deep breath in and as long exhale and just thought oh my goodness I'm living in a village in England and yeah it's kind of all my dreams come true really and what's a new skill that you'd like to learn well I play piano badly 
I'd probably like to master do that, that better. During lockdown, during Melbourne's second lockdown last year, I started doing online lessons with my son's piano teacher. And so that was good. So I, I would, so that while it's not a new, new skill, it's, I'm certainly not very good at it. So I'd like to improve my piano skill. When our piano arrives in our shipping container, we'll, I'll be able to start again. Are you known for a signature recipe? Ah, yes, I am. I do my grandmother's tuna mornay, which is tuna casserole. It's in different states in Australia. It's called something else. But I also do a, a very mean chicken and leek risotto that Ooh, the kids yum. love. And what about <laughs> a person, and it doesn't have to be somebody living now but just somebody that inspires you or has inspired you and and why when my parents took me to England and Europe in 1977 when I was 10 years old I fell in love with Elizabeth I and from that belief that women could do and be anything despite the naysayers although I'm not not besotted with Elizabeth like some historians are I have always gained inspiration and courage from what she did. Obviously, you've done a lot of study and and now you've moved to a new country. So what do you do when you want to relax and unwind? So I do scrapbooking. So I have a, I've marked out a corner in our new conservatory and the tables and the shelves are waiting for my boxes to arrive. My husband will laugh and tell you about 15 of the boxes in the containers are craft related, which he wasn't that happy about at the time he was packing the container. But um, so, yeah, so I, I do that. And then if I'm stressed I tend to put on either Downton Abbey or the West Wing which I've watched more times than I can count West Wing over 20 Downton Abbey at least 10 wow. do you know I, a haven't whole watched, series. I haven't watched West Wing so I definitely have watched oh. Downton Abbey but not so I have oh. to add that to my oh, list now I'm making a oh. note absolutely <laughs> oh my goodness you will love oh, it oh good excellent I'm excited now all right um <laughs> and what about movies what genre of movies do you like for example do you like scary movies oh no mm. no I can't do horror at all I'd have to sleep with the light on I actually I'd probably never sleep again <laughs> if I watched horror movies I'm a bit of a 70s tragic so you know Saturday Night Fever Grease Ghost the 80s probably romance you know we like to watch Notting Hill or you know Four Weddings and a Funeral all those sort of things. It's not that I, I particularly love Hugh Grant, but he sort of made quite a, a few good movies yeah. in, in the 80s that um, I, I really love. And if I'm, you know, like a, it's really funny because we always fall back to, oh, let's watch something. And then we always turn out, end up watching something we've already watched <laughs> the before. Same thing, yeah. <laughs> and it's those sorts of movies that, you know, are the ones that I like to rewatch. And do you have, uh, maybe not at the moment, any pets? Uh, we we don't Mm. Um, we are thinking about getting another dog but in Australia we have a cavoodle called Henry um, and he's with my parents Um, and when we moved here for two years in 2017 to 19 he stayed with them and they didn't want to hand him back to us Um, but we were very grateful to have him for the two years we were um, home again and he's back there with them now so we love him very much. He's nine now. He's a beautiful, placid, um, cuddly dog, um, as caboodly type dogs tend to be. And yeah, we're we're thinking we'll we'll get 
uh, probably another one. They call them cavapoos here. That's a different. Okay. They're called cavoodles mm -hmm. here. Well, um, funny because so yeah, I actually have cavapoos. a I have a cavoodle as well. But funny that yours is placid. Mine is completely opposite. So he must have more poodle, I imagine, because <laughs> even today's been quite kooky. And he's, yeah. <laughs> he's turning, he, what is he turning? He's turning eight, Lockie. We called him Lockie because he was born on the day that we were in Loch Ness. We were visiting the UK. Oh. So we, we oh, thought we called cool. him Lockie. But we've been waiting for him to mellow, thinking, okay, he's, oh. he's getting, he's not oh. mellowing, naughty Lockie. So you're lucky. So Hen, Hen, yeah, Henry was the runt of the litter. Right. So okay. when we picked him, he was hiding in the back. Oh. And so we went, oh, yeah, that one. That's the one. <laughs> good choice, good choice. Um, and what's your favourite form of exercise or activity? Yoga. Yeah, um, and I do a lot of meditation. Uh, I do a meditation group every Monday, which was uh, 7.45 in Melbourne time, p.m. on a Monday. And now I do it at quarter to 11 in the morning. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, you still, so you still do it and you're doing it by uh, online, Zoom or yeah. something? Yeah, That's do it fantastic. by Zoom. What's a subject that you wish you knew a little bit more about, something you're interested in learning more? Look, I, I, I don't think my learning of the Reformation's finished. <laughs> and certainly the I've started to look at the Dutch printing uh, industry and the development of that. Um, Andrew um, Pettigree has a really good book about that, which is in the container that I haven't been able to read yet. Um, but I, I think that I will probably start to do a bit more looking at um, that. It's kind of really fascinating. We went to um, we went to Planton's Museum and it was just the most fascinating thing. So I don't know, it's a bit weird probably. Printing presses and typefaces and <laughs> stuff like that. But I actually find it really interesting. Awesome. Fantastic. And the very final thing is that I asked my guests for a Tudor takeaway. So this is something for our listeners to go off and explore after the episode. So do you have a Tudor takeaway for us? I do. If you're coming to the UK on a holiday, you can get an English Heritage Overseas Visitors Pass so um, or a membership if you live here, depending on who's listening. You know, the money goes towards the upkeep of all the magnificent places and they've been hit really, really hard by COVID shutdowns. So if you if you do that you can really assist them which is great no I don't get paid to say that um but you know like you can you can visit so many places in addition to the big tourist sites you know things like Kenilworth Castle Elizabeth the first home Revo Abbey one of the most significant examples of religious splendor from from this period and one of the most intact ruins in Yorkshire if not the whole country and but you know there's literally dozens and dozens of ruined monasteries around that were destroyed during Henry's reign that you can that you can go and see but if you're not visiting anytime soon and you can't do that, I have a more scholastic one if you'd like me to tell people about that. Um, there's a, a website called luminarium.org. So it's www.luminarium.org. They've got a really large volume of 16th century literature arranged by topics and subject. And they have a really huge history section. It goes from medieval through the Civil War up to the restoration but there's a really big Tudor dynasty section and like you can pick people and they have information about particular people as well so that I, I always found that really interesting they're both fantastic thank you so much and I'll put That's links okay. to those in our show notes no and everyone yeah, can I'll find them it nice to you and, properly <laughs> yeah all good <laughs> I'm, I'm good at remembering websites now after all this and thank you so much Michelle for taking the time to talk Tudors with us it's been an absolute pleasure 
Thank you for having me. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners, so if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family, and don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Music